week, pitchers and catchers are, are reporting to spring trainings across the globe. And by that, I mean in Arizona and Florida. We're almost there, Sam. We are almost there. So much almost you can taste there. the sunshine uh, for, for me in New York and for you in Denver. Like, especially being in colder climes, the idea that pitchers and catchers is actually almost here literally means we can see the sunlight through the darkness. Spring is nigh, as they say. I don't think anybody says that. <laughs> um, and do we might have mentioned this last week. I think we did. Um, but spring training is already going on in certain locales. Salt River Fields at Talking Stick, the home of the Colorado Rockies and the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Nippon Ham Fighters of, uh, of Nippon Professional Baseball, former team of Shohei Otani. They are currently holding their spring training in the Phoenix area. And I think... I feel like maybe there's one other NPB team that's been in Arizona this year, but so there are spring trainings already underway. Yeah. And there are a lot of other actual major league teams where guys are already showing oh, up. Yeah. I saw oh, a yeah. picture today of Noah Syndergaard at Port St. Lucie. Uh, it, it's kind of funny now where we think of like pitchers and catchers reporting date as like this grand day where everybody shows up for the first time and gives each other hugs in the parking lot and all that. A lot of these guys have been around for a while uh, just because the facilities you're going to find in the spring training areas are much better than they would have at home, and it's just so much better to to work out in the program that the team is setting up for you. Um, but still, there is something you know traditional about pitchers and catchers reporting dates and all of that, and it still feels good to to have one day on the calendar where you can say, "Listen, this is when spring training officially starts." So we'll yeah. take it where we can get it. Um, truck day. We already had truck day, which is always a random and fun day on the baseball calendar <laughs> have you ever um, been to a truck day i did i did go to a truck day a few years ago at coors field in which they uh which they haven't done since or at least i haven't been on the emails but they invited everybody down and you got to speak with the the equipment managers and the clubhouse guys and all that kind of stuff of what exactly goes into it and it's pretty cool see that's so much better like when they're actually explaining what's going yeah. on rather than everybody kind of gathering around a truck yeah like the like hundreds of thousands of sunflower seeds and the millions of pieces of bubble gum, you know, whatever it is. Like it's insane. The amount of, uh, the level of detail and stuff that goes into it. Right. I feel like it for a lot of people, it's just their version of groundhog day. Yeah. It's just a signal of, you know, this is how many days left are, are in winter. Is that the fact that truck day is here? It's so great. Don't give up hope people. Don't give up hope. Um, so with that, we welcome you into the 146th episode of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. I am Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in New York City. We are talking all things minor league baseball. Uh, you can head to iTunes. You can head to Google Play. You can head to the Stitcher app milb.com slash podcast anywhere you find your podcasts you can find us and you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription you can get in touch with the show podcast at milb.com uh we think we got a good phishing email from the russians presumably today trying to get us to click something to reactivate our account yeah and when i did click that google chrome swooped in it was just like no no, no you really don't want to do this well the good news is i keep all of the show before the show emails on my very own private email server and that has never caused anyone problems <laughs> and then you just wipe it clean at the end of every day, right just safe right. you know yeah. just to make sure it's never been an issue um so welcome inside this week's edition we are uh, in the final week we're in the cone of silence the final week for pitchers and catchers report all across the big leagues um to spring training camps and uh we have increasingly from year to year gotten more questions from people as to the parameters of spring training we answered one of those last week um you know kind of how you can find where teams are going to be players all that type of stuff um 
But if you have questions, if you're planning on heading to spring training, if you've got questions, feel free to email them to us, podcast at MILB.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter. Sam's at Sam Dykes or MILB. I'm at Tyler Mon. Um, if you're going to be in Arizona or Florida, let us know. We'd love to catch up, say hello. If we're going to be at camps on the same day, whatever it is, uh, maybe Josh and I will find you uh, when we go to get ice cream at this place where we got ice cream last year where I had um, blue – dyed cookie dough ice cream in between no 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 no. the ice cream was cinnamon toast crunch between two chocolate chip cookies i think it was no no it was inside a donut okay you're now you're just yeah. showing off like, yeah it was inside no no a it's donut. not in, it's not in this wonderful package it's in I'm another trying to wonderful find a picture. package again it was the uh it was called the the dough melt and it was a novel ice cream in phoenix and it's uh, a warm glazed donut bun stuffed with artisan ice cream and i got the uh it was called the cookie monster um and it was um cinnamon toast crunch pieces inside of like blue vanilla ice cream and it was amazing so if you're gonna be there and you happen to run into josh and i will probably be there every day uh then you know <laughs> just let us let us know it'll be fun we'll have some fun that's it yeah, th- we can't pinpoint exactly which camp you'll be at every day. But you right, will be at but we camp. will be at Novel Ice Cream every single day. We're not being paid by Novel Ice Cream, but now I kind of hope they give us a free one of those things that I ate last year. And or if I'll- they want to sponsor us in the future, that would yeah. also be good. Even, so you some know, of us who won't, just- won't be in Arizona can reap yeah. some rewards from this Yeah, partner. you can just mail us some T-shirts or something, Novel Ice Cream. <laughs> Why not? Um <laughs> seems like a it's like a good trade for the fact that we just spent two minutes giving plug to an ice cream place that doesn't sponsor this podcast um so let's get started every week on the show before the show we dive into three stories that are the biggest headlines of minor league baseball and we call that segment three strikes it's a baseball term see and let's get started with the first one sam what will be the most buzzworthy camp this spring across the major leagues and the major league affiliates of big league teams when it comes to prospects we already know at the major league level it's gonna be the yankees the john carlos Stanton, yada 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 at the minor league level when it comes to prospects who is the most buzzworthy franchise in baseball well i feel like we have to give this talk every week is that technically we have to call shohei otani a prospect right so him showing up to Our his weekly first... otani disclaimer right yeah uh him showing up to camp is buzzworthy from from that perspective just to finally get to see him work both sides of the ball. I'm actually really interested to see uh, how his workout routine is. Uh, you know, some people say it's really difficult in the spring to kind of coordinate a, a two-way player because they have to go throw with the pitchers, but they also have to go take batting practice. How does that kind of work itself out? Uh, you guys will be able to tell me more about that when you're down in Arizona. Um, but I'll be keeping a close eye on that. Exactly, you know, how much are they going to allow him to pitch? How much are they going to allow him to hit? All that kind of stuff. Uh, keeping a close eye on that because we just have not seen this at the major league level before. Uh, but my personal answer for most buzzworthy camp because there's a couple different storylines there. I know you mentioned the Yankees and we kind of put them off the side because the most interesting thing is going to see Giancarlo Stanton and Aaron Judge taking batting practice, and I think they're going to open up camp. 30 minutes earlier this year um, so people can actually see basically a home run derby every day in Tampa. And I don't blame them for that, but I still really like this Yankees camp from a prospect perspective because I feel like it's the one camp in which there are a couple chances for prospects to break through legitimately to the major league roster. They're going to be trying to get starting spots and it's not just lip service. I mean, every year it's uh, there's talk about, Oh, could this guy make it? You know, maybe if he has a good spring, we'll see. And then they always send him back down 
because of service time issues or whatever. Um, but with the Yankees, they have two openings on their infield. They have one at third base. They have one at second base. They also have two really good infield prospects who look major league ready in Miguel Andahar and Glaber Torres. Uh, I list them in that order because I feel like Andahar really has the inside track right now at the starting third base spot. Uh, you know, people talk about questions about his defense and all that, and I get that. But this is a guy who is, you know, major league ready with the bat. He's number three right now in MLB.com's ranking of third base prospects. Uh, last year, he he was absolutely devastating at both Double A Trenton and Triple A Scranton, uh, hitting 315, 352, 498, 16 homers, two triples, 36 doubles. Came up for a couple games, five with the Yankees in the middle of the season. So he's gotten a little bit of taste of that. You know, they traded away Chase Headley a couple weeks ago, or a couple. Uh, last month, I think it was, or two months ago. Um, so they have that opening now. What happens with it? You know, Todd Frazier went away in free agency, just recently signed with the Mets, Crosstown Rivals. Um, you know, Brian Cashman has mentioned some ideas about who could potentially play third, but Andahar is good enough right now to at least get a long look. And he has a legitimate shot. He already has, you know, some service time. It, it won't be a complete shock to him to be in the majors on opening day. Uh, Torres over at second is the bigger question mark. You know, last year his season ended prematurely after he had a freak accident that led to Tommy John surgery on his non-throwing elbow. Um, you know, he's still recovering from that. He's, by every indication, he's ready to go. He's posting tons of workout videos on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Um, in a normal situation, if he was already a major leaguer, he'd probably be starting the year in the major leagues. He doesn't have that major league clock started yet. So... You know, even coming off the surgery, they're still going to want to see him show that he's fully healthy and also show that he can kind of handle second base. He's a natural shortstop. I think he would stick there in any other organization or most other organizations at the very least. Didi Gregorius coming off a big year. Going to be really hard to push him off short. Um, so Torres could be a second base option. You know, again, Cashman is saying all the right things. He said he's said that, you know, Torres is in that mix along with other a couple other guys like Tyler Wade. But, you know, he has, he faces a little bit more of an uphill climb. He is a top five prospect. He does have the talent to to be the Yankees starting second baseman at some time this year. I would love to see them get aggressive with him. Just say, like, listen, you're ready. We know you're ready. We're, we're trying to compete, we're trying to win this division. We're going to need you as many games as we can. You're our starting second baseman this year. Um, but the fact that the Yankees have those two openings and legitimate prospects ready to step in, you know, that's a, a camp that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on, I think. It's a good one. Um, I'm going to go to the uh, the San Diego Padres organization, and there are, you know, a handful of systems that have a lot of elite-level prospects, but the Padres right now, I don't know, I've got such a, a crush on that system at the moment. Um, it's just like everywhere you look in that system, at every position, it seems like there's somebody super fun to watch. Mackenzie Gore is the top-ranked prospect in that system. Mackenzie Gore has never pitched outside of the lowest level of the minor leagues. He pitched in the Arizona League last year. Of course, he was the third overall selection in the draft, so it's not as though he was some aged prospect if they've just been keeping under wraps. But in his first professional season, seven starts, uh, an ERA of 1.27. He struck out 34 against seven walks in 21 and a third innings. He It gives you an idea of how good Mackenzie Gore is 
that he's the top prospect in the system and he's only pitched in seven games and he's only 18 years old and the rest of the system behind him is loaded. Um, I'm really interested to see what Cal Quantrill will be able to do. The Stanford product friend of the podcast who struggled a little bit um, at double a this year, the strikeout numbers were down from when he jumped up from class a advanced like Elsinore to double a San Antonio in the Texas league. But Cal Quantrill is a really, really fun prospect. The middle infield duo of Luis Arias and Fernando Tatis jr. I'm well, you know, in, Sam's prospect crush on Ronald Acuna is becoming my prospect crush on Fernando Tatis Jr. Um, Adrian Morahone, who is still just 18 years old and last year made 13 combined starts between Tri-City in the Northwest League and Fort Wayne in the Midwest League uh, at the full season level, combined a 3.86 ERA, 58 strikeouts and 63 innings for an 18-year-old in full season ball. He only walked 16 combined over those 63. Um, and Anderson Espinoza, who did not pitch at all last year. Um, he had Tommy John surgery in August so there's a chance that we won't see him in 2018 but if we do see him um, that's another guy who's still really intriguing to keep an eye on because the talent is still very much there for Anderson Espinoza um, and we know Tommy John surgery is not a it's not a death warrant it's uh, something that guys more often than not are able to overcome um, and become what they were before so that's just that upper echelon of the Padre system but even beyond the guys there are so many interesting prospects Jacob Nix is down that list uh, Austin Allen the catching prospect is down that list Michael Getty's an outfielder there are just a lot of really interesting components in that system right now. But I think the top end in the Padres organization is as good as anywhere else. And the fact that they are building a culture in that organization now that I think they're comfortable having their identity behind bodes well for the next few seasons in San Diego. I don't know if 2018 is going to be a great year in San Diego, but I think 2019 and beyond are going to be really, really good. And I think AJ Preller, tried that one crazy offseason in San Diego in which he acquired everybody at the major league level um, and really kind of just drubbed that farm system, which was strange because the way he got that job in San Diego and the way he built himself as an executive was on the international market and through the route of building a minor league system and what they were able to do in Texas. Now that he's gotten back to those roots and gotten back to that identity, this system is so loaded, and I'm really going to be excited to see what's going on in Peoria. Yeah. And you brought up Anderson Espinoza, and you know I highly doubt that he's going to be throwing anything this spring. But one thing I, I would love for you guys to look out for whenever you're there is just how is he mingling, you know, with the team. I mean, there there are so many Latin guys there. You know, you mentioned Morahone, Michel Baez. Uh, you know, you keep going to, down this list, Jorge Onya. I think there's a good mix of international talent here for Espinosa to kind of fit in and, and, you know, they want this to be the core, you know, they want these guys to stick together through the system. So even if Espinosa isn't throwing, you know, what is he interacting or how is he interacting with everybody around him? What is, you know, the, the atmosphere on the backfields, uh, that whole thing, you know, do these guys know that their future is as promising as we think, or, uh, you know, what, what is that kind of gel like? So lots to follow there on that uh, San Diego camp. Strike two, Sam. Pitchers and catchers report to spring training coming up next week, and uh, there are always really interesting batteries across the minor leagues in which prospects come across prospects and get to work together as pitchers and catchers. Who are you keeping an eye on? The most intriguing or your favorite pitcher-catcher combination that could work together coming up this year? Yeah, so – this isn't just, you know, guys who are going to be showing up to camp at the same time and, you know, might be working together in the spring. 
you know, we're trying to focus here on guys who are going to legitimately be, you know, batteries uh, come April, May, June, even. Um, so the one I want to focus on here is in the A system. And I really like this A system, and we can have that discussion another day. I think it's really up and coming. I really like a lot of the moves they made last last season to kind of build things up. Uh, but the one I want to focus on here is A.J. Puck and Sean Murphy. Uh, A.J. Puck, a lot of you know, you know, he's the number 32 overall prospect. In baseball right now, he's the sixth overall pick in 2016. Really lived up to the hype last year. Uh, not when it came to ERA, but I did a story earlier this offseason about how he had one of the better FIPS uh, in minor league baseball, and that comes from his ability to strike guys out. He struck out 184 and 125 innings last year, relying a lot on the fastball and slider. Um, but if you talk to him, he feels like his changeup is really improving. That's what he was really happy with last year. So if he can have that three-pitch mix, add in a kind of developing curveball, uh, he could be even more devastating. And to see him on the mound is freakish and to begin with. He's six foot seven, 220 pounds. Uh, got a lot of moving parts to him. Um, but he still repeats pretty well uh, for that size. So I would want to see him work with anybody regardless. But the fact that he could be back at AA Midland with Sean Murphy to begin this year, uh, I, I have some questions about if one of them is going to be a Midland, one could be at Nashville. Who is that going to be, vice versa? Uh, they both played for Stockton and Midland last year. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're back together in the Texas League just for a quick taste uh, this time around. But Murphy, when MLB.com came out with its positional rankings, uh, a couple weeks ago, Murphy came in at number four, and not because of his hit tool or you know his power or anything like that. It's because of what he is defensively. Uh, you know he got some time in in the Arizona Fall League last year. You're working with a lot of pitchers at that point, uh, a lot of guys you haven't worked with from different organizations. The whole thing. You got a lot of people talking about his defensive work, how good he is at blocking, how good he is at framing, how good his arm is. His arm was given a a 70 grade on the 2080s. Uh, scale so you know that's a plus plus arm I think he threw out about 33 percent that could potentially go up the more he matures he was a third round pick in 2016 so taking a couple rounds after puck um, but still has a really exciting future and the fact that he works with staff so well and will continue to get to work with puck uh, these are you know the relationships you want guys developing when their batteries coming up together you know, but so by the time they get to the majors, it's not introducing yourself. It's all right. I know what you do best, and that goes to both ways. Let's keep doing this, except for now we're doing it at the major league level. Um, so to see them continue that partnership will be really exciting for me. And you know, if they continue to take jumps as they did last year, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see both or either one in Oakland at the end of the year. But it, it, that's got to start out. Um, you know, with them continuing to flourish here coming up in April. They're both non-roster invitees to spring training, so they'll get some work on the Major League side, get to show the A's how ready they really are. And uh, again, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see these guys work together beginning of the year and then potentially end of the year in Oakland. I've got kind of a wild card um, coming into this one, and it involves a few different things all coming together. Um, one of the most intriguing catching prospects in all of baseball is Carson Kelly, who was ranked going into 2018 as the second ranked prospect among all catching prospects in major league baseballs uh, or in minor league baseball via MLB pipeline. Um, so Carson Kelly, if he's not in St. Louis to open up the season, he spent 68 games at triple a Memphis last year. If he goes back to triple a Memphis, there is a chance. And if he doesn't, Andrew Neiser will be right behind him. Um, who is a guy that is, 
maybe not quite in that same tier, but maybe in the tier right behind Carson Kelly as far as talented catching prospects. Those guys could very well be paired in a battery with Alex Reyes, who is the seventh-ranked right-handed pitching prospect uh, still to this day in the game of baseball. And in the Cardinals organization – coming out of 2017 is still the top ranked prospect in that system um, but he's coming off of Tommy John surgery last year we did not see him pitch in the 2017 season so we may not see him right out of the gate uh, he did have Tommy John surgery in February of last year uh, it was right as the start of camp we started hearing a little bit about tightness in the arm and then all of a sudden it was Tommy John surgery so he's got a bit of a head start on the the rehab process so we could see him theoretically in April which would be 14 months after the operation um but even if it's a slower road back for alex reyes once he gets into full game speed i would assume he's going to be back in memphis um and that is a really really fun arm still as long as he gets back to being at least approaching what he was i mean alex reyes went healthy as a 75 grade fastball which is almost as good as you can get um, michael kopak has an 80 grade and kopak is the best graded fastball in minor league baseball right now maybe behind shohei otani but again kind of a different situation with him um I like those guys, though. I like that group. Uh, you just hope, above all, you hope for the health when it comes to Alex Reyes. But if he is back in Memphis, one way or another, he's going to be thrown to somebody really interesting. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of debate amongst Cardinal Nation or whatever you want to call it, Cardinals fandom, about uh, how they're going to use Reyes. You know, Do they use him as a power arm out of the bullpen right away and kind of limit his innings that way? Or you know, do you try to continue to make him a starter? I would love to see him stick as a starter, you know, He's too good a pitcher to just say, we're just going to use you one, two innings at a time. I know coming off the injury, you know, like I said, they, they want to limit in innings and they want to get the most out of him in a major league look. But I, I agree with you, Tyler. I think sending him to Memphis, continuing to work him as a starter, letting him get the most out of his innings, uh, get the most out of his pitches, face guys, you know, second or third times through the lineup. You know, if it means giving him three innings or four innings starts at the beginning of the year, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, Alex Reyes should be a starter going forward. So why tinker with that at, at the beginning? That is, uh, it's, there are so many things, the way dominoes fall in terms of where guys are assigned and who impresses in camp and whatever, it's a guessing game going in, what types of combinations we could see. And a lot of times you're really surprised by the really intriguing catching prospect to land with a really talented rotation. Maybe it's a step up from where you would expect him to start because organizations want to see how that guy will handle a really talented staff. Um, so that's one of the really fun things to watch that goes somewhat under the radar when you're watching where prospects land. Um, but the way those groups are paired uh, coming out of camp is always kind of a fun dynamic. Um, strike three this week, Sam. Uh, coming, I don't know if you knew this, but on Sunday, uh, your team lost the Super Bowl. Thank you for framing it that way. Yeah. It wasn't a team won the Super Bowl no, with a great your strip team sack and the whole stuff. No, lost the Super Bowl, Sam, yes, on Sunday. Thank you. Um, yes. And <laughs> my the, tears uh... just dried, but thank you. No, it's fine. <laughs> The nobody's feeling sorry for you, Boston sports fan. <laughs> um, the Philadelphia Phillies, a very promising minor league system. And Sam, you and I have talked about this two, three years ago. We talked about the Phillies as like, oh man, look at what they got going on in that system. And then the way the Braves built themselves up in that division, and the way the Yankees have taken over with their prospects and yada yada. You kind of forgot about the Phillies a little bit, but with the Eagles having won their first Super Bowl. How close does it feel like the Philadelphia Phillies are to being a team that can win a World Series again? 
Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I really do like the the Philly system still, and I don't think it's so much that they've gotten worse. I think part of it is graduations. Right. You know, Reese Hoskins is no longer a prospect. So when we do our farm system rankings last year, you know, they're going to take a little bit of a hit, and or later this month, I think. Uh, they're going to take a little bit of a hit, but it's not going to be crazy. I mean, J.P. Crawford is still a prospect. Scott Kingery is is right there. Um, so technically in the system, they still have a promise, a lot of promising young talent, and especially when it comes to pitching at the lower levels, uh, which is going to take a few years to you know for that all to develop. But Sixto Sanchez is a top 100 prospect. Adonis Medina is a top 100 prospect. Uh, Jojo Romero has gotten some love elsewhere. Franklin Quilome. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot in this system still there. And when I look at how the Phillies are kind of built for this year, you know, they're coming off, I think it was a 66-win team last year. I remember Ben saying, you know, are they going to lose 100 games? I just don't want that to happen. It, they finished 66-96. and 96, So, you know, they weren't a 100-loss team last year. To try to say they're going to be World Series contenders in a couple of years is difficult to say at this point. But – you look at the core members of this team, you know, Reese Hoskins, the way things look right now, won't be a free agent until 2023. Uh, J.P. Crawford, 2023. Nick Williams, 2023. Adubel Herrera uh, uh, is signed through 2021, but has club options for 2022 and 2023. Aaron Nola is signed through 2021. Cesar Hernandez is signed through 2020. And that's if you assume he's the starting second baseman of the future. If you don't and they trade him like they did with Frandy Galvis, then Scott Carey comes in and his clock's going to start this year. And he's probably looking at 2024 being signed through. Um, you know, Jorge Alfaro, lots of question marks with him, but he's going to be, you know, a big time catcher this year for them. He's, you know, they hope going to be their catcher of the long term here. So they already have a lot of pieces in place. And you kind of looked at it this offseason. You know, they signed Carlos Santana, which really surprised me thinking, you know, Reese Hoskins is your future first baseman. Why would they target somebody like Santana? They apparently think Hoskins did well enough in left field to move him out there. But the fact that they're dipping into the free agent waters makes you think the Phillies think they're a lot closer to contending than their 2017 record would indicate. So with that in mind, you look forward to next offseason, which we all know is going to be a bonanza in terms of free agents. You know, we can have that conversation about what does free agency look like now, especially coming off this offseason in which Eric Hosmer and Jake Arrieta and all the other big names are still unsigned. But, you know, Bryce Harper's a free agent next year. Clayton Kershaw's going to be able to opt out. Manny Machado's a free agent next year. Um, Josh Donaldson's a free agent next year. There are lots of opportunities for the Phillies, who are not a small market team, to dip into their finances and decide okay listen we've got the core of prospects ready now let's add some big free agents to kind of fill out the roster and that goes from a 66 win team to you know a potential 90 win team really quickly if they decide they're going to start spending um so you know i i think they're going to be a better team this year do i think they're going to contend for a second wild card spot i wouldn't put a prediction that way quite yet do I think they could hover around 80 wins? I do. You know, I think J.P. Crawford's going to be really good this year. Um, adding Kingery to that mix and however long they can. Getting Reese Hoskins in for 162 games is going to be huge. Adding Santana to the mix is going to be great. I have some questions about their pitching. Um, so if I had to say what a year is going, what year they're going to be like really big 
World Series contenders. It's probably 2020 when we're talking about a time when Sixto Sanchez will probably be fully major league ready uh, and some of the other guys I mentioned. Um, but, you know, beyond NOLA, there's not a guy on on their starting staff uh, that I can say with real confidence, you know, should be a top three pitcher on a World Series team. So they're going to have to do some tinkering there. Um, but, you know, I think they're a lot closer than what their performance last year would indicate. So, uh, Philly fans, maybe there's more coming for you. You know, Sixers are playing well. Phillies are, are loaded up. Uh, and you got to – did they burn down the entire city, though? I didn't really get to – I'm assuming. I think they left up the Rocky statue. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. But, the, but they did leave a crack in the Liberty Bell, and they're going to have to fix that. Unbelievable. Like, that no thing respect. Is, that thing has been through enough, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. All right. These these kids today. No respect for the Liberty Bell and its crack. Um, we are uh, going to wrap up three strikes for this week's 146th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. But coming up, we're going to stick with MILB.com. We are going to hear from Josh Jackson, your, mine, and our Josh Jackson. Your, yours? Mine. I don't know. <laughs> and also his wife's. Like, oh, yeah. She has and, a bigger... and Ella's. She's probably yeah. got more of it. Um, yeah. And Josh has a couple of cats, uh, you know, who Mickey, it, Mickey partially owns Josh as well. Um, so Josh is going to join us. He's going to talk about a really cool story that he had up on the site this week um, on the main guides, the AAA main guides, formerly of the International League. And uh, tell us about one of the really unique stories in IL history. Josh Jackson coming up next. We welcome in one of our own for uh, for this week's interview on the show before the show podcast. Uh, Josh Jackson joins us. Josh has been more um, dedicated to finding a quality place to record from than like Sam and I ever are. Josh has been <laughs> Josh has been very very um, cognizant of wanting to have good sound quality today. But you sound good, Josh. Hi. Hi. Well. Despite my efforts, we may well get like fire trucks or weed whackers or screaming children or all of the above all at once. So uh, I mean, you're in Los we'll, Angeles. We'll I feel like happens. I feel like those just happen anyway. Right, you know, the, the just soundtrack the of our lives. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe first things first. Coyote howls in here. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Uh, first things first. Josh and I have booked our palatial estate for spring training. Um, the the PE rides again. Our third year and the PE, um, and very excited about it. Uh, so Josh and I will be at Cactus League Spring Training coming up March 17th through the 23rd-ish. Um, <laughs> I say ish because I get in, like, late on the 17th and leave late on the 23rd, and so I'm going. there will be coverage in there for those days, but not – exactly nailed down which on which places josh will be getting in on the 18th and and likewise leaving on the 23rd and sam is headed to the grapefruit league um sam i bet your place will not be as cool as our place i i mean that's guaranteed because there will be two of you and one of me that is but true. also the fact that it is the two of you and just the well, one of me you know that's affects true things as well sam you'll have to stay in the number of places probably right hopefully last year i stayed one place in tampa and then another place in west palm beach uh, hopefully I'll move around a little bit more this year, but that's just the nature of uh, Florida compared to what you guys have in Arizona. We get the the convenience of the Cactus League, um, and we Josh and I booked this place that found on on Airbnb, and it looks just way too cool, like super nice. So 
and like was pretty affordable and booking a month out. I figured, well, there's no way that this is actually going to work, but uh, like the dude got back to us. The thing that I liked most about it though, and I pointed this out to Josh, there are 99 pictures on the Airbnb listing, but only 21 of them are the actual place itself. And then the other 78 are just things you can do around Arizona. There's like just random, picture, like skydiving. Yeah, there's a picture of sushi. There's like pictures of snow in the northern Arizona mountains. And I was like, there's one of polo matches, which I find very strange, of like dudes on horseback chasing after a ball. I don't think many people go to the Phoenix area for the polo. I could be wrong. I don't know. It's possible. No, nope. yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, well, you know, I guess we'll find out. If Josh and I start submitting a lot of polo stories from the Cactus League, you all will know that we we made our way to uh, to broadening our horizons. Um, so with that, we're going to get to what we actually are having Josh on the show for, and it's not to talk about where we're going to be staying in six weeks in Phoenix, although that's very exciting for us. Um, but Josh wrote a story that is up on the site right now and is fantastic. Whenever Josh dives in uh, and goes long on historical stories, they're always great. And this one is about uh, something that is near and dear to Josh's heart as a, a Mainer, as a native Mainer, about the 1985 uh, Maine Guides, or 84, correct? Was 84 the first season? Yeah, 84 was the first season. And they played as the Guides through the 87 season, and then they were the Phillies for their, their last of and so basically the the crux of this story the hook if you will of this story um is that the uh the town of old orchard beach which hosted this franchise in the triple a international league is like in no way a triple a city and yet hosted a very successful franchise for a short term uh, a team that kind of struggled toward the end of its run there but you know small small town a place that gets a lot of tourists but was able to build a beautiful ballpark um that still stands still hosts baseball um this is a really neat story just kind of take us through the genesis of this for you um, well, yeah, the genesis for me is, is that, you know, as a kid growing up in Maine, the guides were always, I was always kind of aware of them, but, uh, I, you know, I, they were, they were really gone before I had any real knowledge of baseball, baseball, before I was able to really understand like anything about the way minor league baseball worked or, um, or, or really kind of like what professional baseball really is in all its different incarnations. And then um, at some point, not that long ago, I mean, I say that and it was probably like 10 or 15 years ago. I, I was kind of like, Hey, what, what the heck were the main guys anyway? Like what level of, of ball was that? Like who, who played there and for how long? And um, yeah, I looked it up and I was like, wait, they were in the international league, like <laughs> the international league. The, the one that uh, we all know and love today, you know, um, oh, I know Old Orchard Beach. I grew up in Portland. Um, Old Orchard Beach is not a city like a Columbus or a Buffalo or, uh, yeah, it's a town that still has fewer than 10,000 people. I think probably around 8,000 people. Um, and at the time, it was like around uh, 6,500 people, um, which, you know, I think there's short season most short season uh, teams towns are, are larger than that now. Um, so I was kind of fascinated by that and always kind of wanted to, to explore what exactly went on there. And what exactly 
did you do for research for this type of story? I, I know you went home, which I, I'm sure was part just like a visit to go back to Maine, but uh, it seems like a lot of what you got from that trip went into this story. You know, what type of people were you talking about? How did it lead you to some of the people you did talk about or talk to? I, I mean, you have quotes from like <clears throat> former managers, from uh, former Bat Boys, just lots of local flavor in this story. Talk, walk us through exactly, you know, how you were able to get in contact with some of these people and how are they still able to share their memories of the main guides, you know, some 30 years later? Well, sure. The um, going, you know, to visit my family in Maine this January was actually the point where, where I said, oh, you know what, this could be a great time for me to, to do uh, that story on the main guides, look into the main guides the way that, the way that I, you know, had them on my mind for a while, the way that our schedule works off, you guys both know, and I think probably a lot of listeners do too, is during the season we're we're pretty um, kind of, you know, uh, pedal to the floor on just kind of keeping up with everything that's going on uh, in minor league baseball now. And then during off seasons, we get to sort of explore historical stories or take some time to kind of explore in greater depth um, stories from the last few seasons that uh, we don't really have the time to do during the season. So a trip to Maine meant um, it was time to, during the off season, meant that it was time to go ahead and pitch this, this, this feature um, to, you know, our, our editorial staff. And um, one of the first people, one of the first people I talked to was, uh, was Gary Thorne because, one of our our uh, great editors, Darren Smith, when I when I you know had pitched the story, he said he replied, um, you know G- Gary Thorne was a part owner. Uh, Gary Thorne, of course, is the broadcaster for the Orioles and has done a number of other uh, major league sports and and I think even like pro wrestling. He's done a huge amount of nationally broadcast um, games since had a long career in broadcasting. So. Um, I explored that and, and reached out to, to Gary Thorne uh, first, and he um, so he actually had been a lawyer in Bangor, Maine, um, and that through through that life as a lawyer, he was connected to this figure named Jordan Cobras, um, who kind of spearheaded this project, and and uh, you know switched careers from being a lawyer to, to deciding like, Hey, I want to, I want to be in baseball. So I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And he brought Gary and some other investors on board. Um, Thorne had uh, decided he would take just one summer, the summer of 1984, he would take a sabbatical from the law firm um, and call the guys games because, Hey, now he was a part owner in this team He'd, he'd done broadcasting. He was a he was a DJ at his his local high school when he was like 15. He had a, a show on on Saturdays, I think, um, and had kept on broadcasting through, you know, college and, and helping him pay for law school. But it was not um, something that he seemed that he thought he was going to do as a career uh, until he did. He took the sabbatical with the guides and. Peter Gammons, this is all in the article, so uh, I, I should speed it up a little, I guess, but Peter <laughs> Gammons at the time was uh, writing for the Boston Globe, and he wrote a column about how great the guides are and, and kind of 
casually mentioned in there, like, oh, by the way, their broadcaster is incredible. Um, somebody at the Met saw that column and called Peter Gammons and said, this guy who does the broadcast for the main guys, do you think he would want to call games for us? Um, and then the next season, so the 1985 season, he was a, a Mets commentator, and he's, he's been a big league uh, broadcaster ever since. Um, he was a partner in a law firm at the time right. and said, like, yeah. oh, I was just figuring I'd go call some games for the summer on a sabbatical, and I go back to working at the law firm, and then he becomes a major league broadcaster after one season of doing AAA ball. Like, that's a that's a fairy tale story. It is. It is. It is you know, he was in a career that was already – that's a career where, um, you know, he thought he was kind of set. This is what he was going to do. And, uh, yeah, different different life now than, than he imagined before um, getting involved with the guides, even when he was involved with the guides. Um, so that was one of my, you know, first and, and first conversations and a really interesting conversation was, was with him. Uh, and then um, so there was a Sports Illustrated article that, that ran in 1984, um, I believe July of that year, that was about this very thing, the fact that, hey, look, this tiny town in Maine has a has a triple A team. And it mentioned um, the son of the town manager who was a bat boy. And I I saw that and I said, if I can find this guy, um, that will be great. If I can talk to Dean Plant. Um, and pretty easy to, to discover. Dean Plant is now the athletic director at Old Orchard Beach High School. Um as well as the football coach there and the coach of the girls uh, varsity girls basketball team. Um, so he was really excited to talk to me. I mean, he, he I think um, he was surprised to, to, on a random day in January, get an email that was like, you know, uh, Hey, do you want to talk about the main guide uh, and your bat boy experience there? And then through them, through him, I got into touch with his father, uh, being, I mean, Jerry plant who, He's a really fascinating character, too. Jerry Plant was um, a main – he served in the Maine State Senate for, I think, yeah, at least parts of the 50s and 60s. I think large parts of both of those decades. Um, he was involved in um, getting the Maine Democratic uh, Party behind JFK for JFK's election. He, he has, like, a long – an interesting legacy in Maine politics. Um, so I was delighted to be able to talk to him too. Something interesting that came out of that conversation that, that is not in the article um, is that Gary Plant growing up was kind of a Cleveland Indians fan, which Cleveland was the first uh, parent club of, of the guides. Um, and well, you know, how on earth does, a kid in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, become a Cleveland Indians fan. Um, well, Plant, he, you know, he said, uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he said, you know, he was he was a Franco-American, and uh, he saw that the Indians had a player named Lou Boudreau. So he became a huge Indians fan, and then he grows up, he has a long, distinguished career in politics. He, he becomes the town manager of his, his hometown. And suddenly he's, he's, he's hosting, uh, his city is hosting the parent club. Of, I mean, the, the AAA affiliate of his 
unlikely childhood uh, favorite team. So obviously we've kind of set up exactly what happens to get the team there and all the kind of characters that are involved. Um, kind of walk us through us or walk us through, you know, what happened afterwards. I mean, it's a small miracle that the team was there in the first place. Uh, it only lasted, what'd you say, five seasons, 84 to 88, uh, becoming yeah, the right. Phillies in, in the 88 season. And then they leave for Scranton Wilkes-Barre. Uh, you know, how was this, how, how did this team go away? How did they set up what seemed like a successful thing, the middle eighties, and then have it go away that quickly? Yeah. So there are a lot of, uh, a lot of factors kind of, kind of contributed to that. Um, one of them is that, you know, uh, Old Orchard Beach being an unlikely place for, for AAA baseball, you could say maybe it's a place where AAA baseball doesn't really belong and can't really sustain interest for that long. Um, in talking to people for the story, it seems like uh, they, they a lot of people didn't really remember a humongous decline in attendance um but there really there really was it, uh the first couple of years there was not but um from year two to three there's a big drop and and you know further after that part of that is um you know the excitement over having and having a triple a team kind of goes away uh, a little bit wears out a little bit it's no longer this this novelty that like everybody in the region has got to go check out um another part of it is that the the stadium, the ballpark there, which is called the ballpark, um, it's built in a place where mosquitoes are gonna feast. Um, <laughs> I don't know how familiar listeners are with with uh, with Maine mosquitoes and black flies, and um, but in the summers, in some places, especially close to like standing water, uh, they can be pretty fierce um so i you know it's hard to say like the mosquitoes are why people didn't keep coming back but i think the the comfort level at the ballpark is a factor in addition to to kind of the the wearing thin of the excitement um and then there was always kind of this political um uh uneasiness i guess is the right word about the team being there from from townspeople um in the beginning and some people seem to feel like this was the the thing that that really caused uh the the attendance to decline and which would then um make the owner interested in selling the team and then once the owner gets interested in selling the team the team becomes harder to get behind because you don't know if it's you know if the team is on its way out and you've only had it for a few seasons, you're probably um, not that happy about it. Oh, and the political situation is that um, the town of Old Orchard Beach was going to be responsible for paying for the construction of the ballpark and the maintenance of the ballpark and, and, and they would end up owning the ballpark, although they were not the um, original owners of it, the, the owner of the ball, the, the owners, the ownership group, of the ball club um, had the had the park built, but they did so with a loan that was um, guaranteed in, in a way by 
the town of Old Orchard Beach. The town said, if the ownership defaults on this loan, uh, we'll we'll pick up, you know, whatever's what's left on the loan, and that's how the loan was was guaranteed. Um, so, yeah, actually, there's a, there's a quote that I, you know, I did not use from um, a newspaper account at the end of the season where it's a it's a, a column that appeared in the Bitterford Journal Tribune where somebody who was a huge fan, he directly says, you know, it's, it's such a shame that politics had to ruin all this for everybody. Uh, so he really saw, and I think a lot of people in town really saw that as uh, a big culprit. Culprit, when he wanted to sell the team, his, his intention was to get a double-A team, I think from Waterbury, Connecticut, um, into the park. If it's not suited for if he if he can't draw well enough for AAA, then maybe it, you know AA might um, might be a better fit. I think was was kind of the thinking there, and um, uh, you know there is there is a perception still among some people in Old Orchard Beach that I talked to about that that Coberts wasn't really interested in keeping the team there at all. That he just wanted to sell the team and move on and. and set up a new team somewhere else like um but in fact his his agreement to sell the team included the ability to bring a double a team uh, or his understanding of the agreement was that he would be able to bring a double a team there um that all fell apart in this long uh and, and um long series of lawsuits and and quite a bitter and, and acrimonious end there but um you know, as, as those things can, can get over ownership of the team. But uh, none of that, of course, did very much to get people to keep coming to the ballpark either. All right, Josh, last point. Um, this story is fantastic, and it's up on the site right now. And if you're a fan of AAA baseball or the International League or New England baseball, you should really go check it out. But um, the uh, the previous um, long read that Josh did on a, from a historical perspective was on the, the uh, Hollywood Stars in the Pacific Coast League. And in that story, there was a, uh, a tale about – a brawl gone insane in which like the cops had to be called like the chief of police was like watching the game at his house and like had to dispatch people to break up a fight a beanball war and all that kind of craziness i demand all of your stories going forward have insane fight stories in them i'll do what i can (laughs) start them if you have to yeah yeah like if you start the fight if you become the fight you know that's your lead right there right journalist beaten up while instigating fight story with fight. I think it works. You assume I would lose the fight, Tyler? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's the classic case of you should see the other guy. You know, it's a, it's a thing. Yeah, all right. We'll do some training in the in the, the PE for spring training. We'll do some – we'll do some uh, – we'll prep you for it. We already know we're going to be swinging from the fa- – <laughs> I already know we're going to be jumping on the beds and swinging from the fans, though we were expressly no, no, we're forbidden. Be, oh, wait. Oh, wait. Yeah, we're not going to be doing that. We were ex- expressly forbidden in the bylaws of this place that we got from jumping on the beds and swinging from the fans, which really makes me wonder why those specific things had to be included, because there's got to be a story there. Um, but uh, Josh and I certainly will not be doing that. And uh, check out the story on MILB.com. Josh is on Twitter at Josh Jackson, MILB, and it's a great one, as they all are from Josh. And uh, – 
thanks for thanks for joining us, buddy. We'll uh, we'll talk to you again in in six weeks on the podcast for a little Cactus League extravaganza. Thank you so much for having me. Big thanks to Josh Jackson again. He's on Twitter at Josh Jackson M I L B. Um, and uh, here we are, third segment. We promised you something last week, and we are ready to deliver. For those of you who did not know, Sam's team lost the Super Bowl on Sunday. A team won also, but most importantly, the New England Patriots lost the Super Bowl on Sunday, and nobody has any sympathy for Sam. Um, but Sam made. I didn't a bet. ask for it. <laughs> I did not ask for sympathy. Be fair. But Sam, on. Sam made a bet with uh, with our own Benjamin Hill, Ben, a Philadelphia area native, Sam, a New Englander, New Englander uh, with a football. Um, and there was a <laughs> there was a a bet made in which the loser, as is Sam, in this context, because his team lost the Super Bowl on Sunday, the loser would have to read a poem crafted by the winning team's MILB.com writer about said city. So, Sam, take it away. Say, I will give Sam a boatload of credit. Sam sent me the poem that Ben wrote so I can follow along and hold Sam accountable and make sure that he's not skipping over anything from a poem titled, Oh, Philadelphia, by Benjamin Hill. Yes. Um, I, I should point out a few things before we uh, begin this. Um, that this was actually pretty funny because I, I told a couple people about this before, during, and after the game, and they said it was actually more work for Ben to have written this than it was for me. So this this was not written by me. This, was, again, was written by one Benjamin Hill, uh, and again, the poem is titled, Oh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. My heart flutters for thee. My loins are girded for thee. My soul yearns for your embrace. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, city that I love, city of my burning desire. Philadelphia, the land of heroes, the land of legends, the land that plucks my heartstrings an ecstatic reverie. Philadelphia, inexorable, inescapable, indescribable, my impulse to sing your praises. Philadelphia, unparalleled its people, unprecedented its history, unbeatable its NFC East Conference football team. Philadelphia, I wish I could be a part of you. I wish I could be as wonderful. I wish... Yet, I can never be. Philadelphia. Oh, cruel fate, that would cast me as such, for I am but a lowly denizen of an inferior locale. Philadelphia. Oh, Philadelphia, you are now and forever number one. Thank you. Two points I want to make um, among them. And they're actually tied together. Two lines that I want to address. Philadelphia unparalleled its people. And ironically enough, it ends with the phrase, you are now and forever number one. Ironic because after the Super Bowl, um, there was a video posted on the internet of an Eagles fan consuming a number two by a horse in the street. So... 
you know, unparalleled its people, certainly, and number one, <laughs> you know, in a certain context, I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's uh, – I like the New York Post headline, by the way. Eagles fan stoops to new low, even for Philly. <laughs> I just want this noted that Ben, when he sent the email, Ben is on a train – to Hartford. He's actually helping the yard go to their promo reveal. That's why he couldn't be with us today. Uh, but he made sure to ask me to do this with the appropriate level of fervor. Yeah, he said so fervor was not that optional. I, did this, I wanted to do every line of this dripping with sarcasm, <laughs> as is my people. Like that, I wanted to do it with hard New England sarcasm, just rolling my eyes. And I did not. And I want, I want the extra points for this. That is true. That is true. I'll, I want. Uh, I'll give you that credit. I want nine extra points for this, which would put us over the Eagles and give us. Two. But you didn't get them, and you lost. Just, just to make that clear again, you lost. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it appears that you're training Josh McDaniels to take over your franchise. So enjoy <laughs> riding off of that cliff together. It'll be fun. It, uh, yes. it happened here. Even like the official mascot of the show before the show podcast, she shakes in approval, as you could hear her <laughs> collar probably in the background. She, she heard Josh McDaniels. She's like, no, 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 she, no, no, no. She, no, she no, shuddered. No. Oh, God. It's terrible. Um, she wasn't alive then. Thank the Lord for her. Um, so that'll do it uh, for uh, for the poetry, the first poetry ever read on the show before the show podcast i think probably i don't know we've I done like, like 150 of these are normally poetry but sure you go with whatever oh, look at you nicely done coming back to wrap up the show next <laughs> We're going to get out of here. Episode number 146, the show before the show. Head on to MILB.com. Double A baseball is headed to Amarillo, Texas. Um, the series of movements that involves Colorado Springs and Helena and San Antonio and Amarillo and all this stuff. Um, it's all in the story on the site from Benjamin Hill, Amarillo, breaking ground on a ballpark. Um, you can actually follow them already on social media at Amarillo Pro BB. And uh, they've got uh, all kinds of stuff getting set for an anticipated opening date of 2019, targeted completion date February 1st, 2019, for uh, a new ballpark in Amarillo and Texas League Baseball to follow. By the way, Amarillo City Manager Jared Miller, in case you're wondering – is not the Vanderbilt product of the Diamondbacks organization, though his name is linked <laughs> in the story to Jared Miller's player page. Not the same guy. Uh, I, I was going to say, been cool. like a, I immediately perked up and was like, wait a second. If he was like pulling double duty, friend of the podcast, it would have been pretty cool. But yeah, alas, no, I, I always love speaking alas, to Jared Miller. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. I, w- I would love to see what he could be as a city manager. But, uh, you know, he's doing a pretty on, good job as a baseball player. So yeah, focus on pitching for the D-backs and, yeah. and maybe, maybe in the future. 53 appearances last year, 94 strikeouts and 70 and two thirds for Jared Miller. Man, that kid is good. Um, that'll do it. One other note, uh, Yankees fans, another big acquisition. Russell Wilson headed your way from the Texas Rangers. Super Bowl winning quarterback Russell Wilson had Super Bowl losing as well. Quarterback Russell Wilson headed from the uh, the Texas Rangers to the New York Yankees. Big Why? impact move, Sam. We could not Sam. tell you. No, we cannot tell you. Uh, he's only played second base, and as I mentioned earlier, the Yankees have an opening at second base. Yeah, yeah. What? But no, that's not. It's he's going to give some speeches at spring training. He's going to talk about what it's like to to reach the pinnacle of your profession, and then uh, and then he'll go back. Yeah, um, something like that. I uh, I, want, 
I want to know exactly what they traded. They traded future considerations. He was a uh, he was a rule five selection to go to the Rangers, correct? Yes, he was okay. in the Rocky system. He played right. for. He was initially Asheville. drafted by the Rockies. What I find interesting, he played at a couple levels in the Rockies organization. What I find interesting in his uh, in his statement is he says, I want to personally thank the Texas Rangers and John Daniels for drafting me and giving me the chance to experience professional baseball again. I guess that's technically accurate. They took him in the Rule 5 draft. But you read yeah, it they first took- and you're like, wait a minute, you weren't drafted by the Rangers. But I Yeah, guess they technically- took him in the double-A the portion of the Rule 5 draft, um, which does not exist anymore, by the way. So... <laughs> It, it was like for $12,000 or something, the Rangers acquired Russell Wilson from the Rockies. Uh, and the only reason he's still technically on these rosters and not retired or anything like that is so he can show up to spring training and, and like I said, be the inspirational speaker of the day and that whole thing and, and, and you know collect a nominal salary and then get out of I was going to say, like, they have to pay him something, correct? I think so, but it's it's – very little and then he gets put on the inactive list pretty quickly that is fascinating um a quote from brian cashman quote we've admired russell's career from afar for quite some time this is a unique opportunity for us to listen to learn from an extraordinary athlete who has reached the pinnacle of his profession i think the yankees could just shell out speakers fees to somebody (laughs) you (laughs) You would think they could just pay him through the uh, regular (laughs) means although i did (laughs) i did find this story from 2016 uh in the uh, Seattle newspaper. Uh, the headline was Yankees want players to be like Russell Wilson and not Cam Newton. Oh, okay. Um, so, which is one heck of a take to begin with. That but is also, one scorching hot take. Yeah, wow. but also it's just very interesting that they said that a while ago, huh. you know, two years ago now, and now he's officially Yankee. Acquire him. Um, yeah. Russell Wilson in his, uh, his MILB.com player page is babyface Russell Wilson from 2011 when he was uh, a 22-year-old young buck with the Asheville Tourists of the South Atlantic League. Um, and it's it's pretty great to see this this young Russell Wilson smile on his player page. It's actually pretty cool. Um, so now technically a uh, member of the New York Yankees organization, and uh, I, I don't I don't think – We'll be hearing much from him on the field unless he gives no. the speeches on the field. No, but we do have to acknowledge the fact that it, it would be it so awesome to see him and Tebow in the same game. It's oh, not going to happen. Man. It's man. not going to happen. But that how be, awesome would that be? That yeah. would be very interesting. Very interesting stuff. Um, <laughs> people can dream. You know, we can dream. Yeah. Dream. Um, we need to get better dreams, I think. <laughs> but yes. It's people the can. end. This is like the dearth. Like we're in the last throws of the off season so we're like for the most part we've all gone insane next week will pretty much be cured but for the most part we've all gone insane <laughs> and we're just trying to make it through these last like you know six seven days before pitchers and catchers report Ugh. yeah that's a pretty good pitch to tu- tune in next week see, yeah see yeah exactly see if we make it more with it yeah, it's like a, we're like an old time radio narrative program. Tune in next week to see if Sam and Tyler make it through their insanity to pitchers and catchers reporting. <laughs> I like to think it's Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, OK. That's what yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. That's Rocky even better. Bullwinkle is really good at that. That is even better. Now, um, who is Rocky? Who is Bullwinkle? You can decide for it. Huh? I think we all know. <laughs> He's Sam Dykstra, a fan of the Super Bowl losing New England Patriots. And I'm Tyler Mon. We will talk to you next week.